Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Pray with me. Lord, you are a great God and greatly to be praised. The sun and the moon and the stars, they proclaim your greatness and you call them out by name. Out in every person in this room, you knit them together in their mother's womb. God, you fashion them. And before a word is even on their lips, you know it completely. God, it's your desire that tonight that they would hear from you. So God, I pray that you would remove me out of the way. God, that you would give every person here ears to hear from you tonight. God, and speak. We are desperate for a word from you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a junior at Samford, I went on a mission trip to Mexico with some girls from 80 Pi. And I had the great privilege of being the bus driver or the van driver for this trip. And I don't know if you guys have ever driven a 15-passenger van. It's insane. Or driven in Latin America. It is also utterly insane. There's no rules, right? There's no real lanes. You just kind of like see an opening and you kind of go for it and try to take it. So me and a couple buddies, uh, we had been there the year before. And we were driving through Matamoros. And we're trying to get back to where we think our friends are. And I get stuck because I'm a chicken in the middle of this intersection. And all these cars start honking at me and I'm freaking out. And as soon as I realize that we're stuck, I look up and there is 
a sign that so clearly says, no left-hand turns. And I'm stuck here in this intersection trying to make an illegal left-hand turn. And then I look down and I make eye contact with a cop car that is directly across from me. The guy looks at me. I start to pull over. His lights go on. He asks me to get out of the car. And as he asks me to get out of the car, I have this shocking, terrible realization. I don't have my license. And so I start trying to process how I'm going to go about having this conversation. And the cop asked me if I know that what I did was wrong. And I was like, yes, I'm so sorry. In Spanish, I saw that sign. Uh, I apologize. And he says, okay, give me your license. And so I just start walking back to the van and I grab my passport and I walk back and I hand it to him. He says, no, 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 your driver's license. And I go, oh yeah. Oh, it's right over here in this hostel. So I just start walking away from the guy. He's like, no, 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 no. what are you doing? What are you doing? I was like, oh, I just kept it over here. He goes, you have to have your driver's license on you at all times, right? It's illegal not to. And he starts listing off, okay, you made an illegal left-hand turn. You stopped up traffic. You didn't have your driver's license. And then he says, it costs this much money in a fine, or I can just take you to jail. And at this point, I sit there sweating, thinking, what in the world am I going to do? And then I do the only thing that I know to do and just say, okay. And so he repeats himself and I just say, "Ah, lo siento, no comprendo. Anytime he mentions money or jail, I just apologize that I can no longer understand what he's talking about. And I start praying because I've got this really big problem. I don't see any way out. And we just keep circling back and back and forth. I need someone in this moment to rescue me. And I kid you not, this is amazing. A motorcade passes us. And this motorcade is escorting the future president of Mexico who is going to visit the slums of Matamoros. So these cops, they see that Felipe Calderon is on his way and they start trying to hurry up the conversation. So I reach in my pocket, pull out a $20 bill and I say, is this enough? And the guy cusses me out and then sends me on my way. And I go back to the van and explain to all my friends who were dying laughing what had actually just happened. I had a problem. I could not see a way out. I needed someone to rescue me. And thankfully, Felipe Calderon came to my rescue. If you guys were here last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the humble king, right? He has authority over absolutely everything everything. But at the end of chapter one, people are coming to Jesus because they've heard some good things, or maybe they want to see a show. But more than anything, why they're coming to Jesus is they've got problems that they don't know how to solve. And they've heard that this guy, Jesus, he takes care of problems. He can fix things that can't be fixed. And what Jesus does in the passage that we just read in the next couple passages is he starts to explode people's expectations of who he is and what he came to do. So let's dive back in to that passage in Mark 1, starting in verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. You guys may know this, but this term leprosy was kind of a catch-all for a lot of terrible diseases. And basically, here's the gist of everything. You would start to develop sores on your skin, right? And your limbs, they would go numb until they eventually fell off. This is just freaking terrible. 
And while people in Bible times, they, they might not have known much about leprosy, one thing that they did know is that it was contagious. And so they sent you off. You were quarantined. You were kind of in your own little camp. So if you developed leprosy, this meant that your life was effectively over. All the relationships that you've ever had, they're done. To add insult to injury, anytime they came around people who didn't have leprosy, they had to self-declare themselves. This, is, uh, this comes from Leviticus 13. The leper who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone in a habitation without the camp. So to call these lepers outcasts would be a kind of a gross understatement, right? They have no real friends. They, uh, most of the people around them would have looked at them, like the people in John chapter 9 did, as cursed by God. The only reason that you have this disease is because you must have done something, or somebody in your family must have done something, and God is punishing you. So this is the society that this leper is growing up in. So he knows the risk that he is about to take. And yet he comes right at Jesus. Of course, he wants to be free from this disease. But can you imagine how desperately he must have wanted to be free of that isolation, that rejection that came with being a leper? And so he comes to Jesus begging him to do something because he knows that he has no other hope. And I love what it says here. It says that Jesus is moved with pity. And Jesus is moved with pity because he sees the ravages that sin has caused in this world. He sees the devastation that sin has brought. This is not the way that the world should be. This is not the way that the world one day will be. It's not the way that the world was created to be. This is what Jesus came to fix, to right every wrong, to heal every wound, to undo all of the sorrow and the brokenness that sin has caused. And so Jesus, for the sake of this man, he moves and he acts with unfathomable pity. Let's keep going. Chapter two, verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now these four guys, they're amazing, right? They've kind of got this singular conviction. If we could just get our friend to Jesus... Jesus will fix everything. Like the leper, they know that there is no other hope for their friend. We don't know how hard it was, right, for them to get to this house. We don't know how long the journey was or even how hard the paralytic fought to go. All we know is that by the time they finally make it to the house, the house is full. There's no way for them to get in. And if I'm one of these guys I probably collapse at the door in frustration and disappointment at this point. I probably start rolling through my mind all the other options of what we could do. But I got to tell you something. You could give me a nearly infinite amount of time. I'm not going to come up with this plan that these guys do here. And if somebody has this plan, if somebody says, 
bro, I've got this idea. Let's get up on the roof and rip the tiles off and then just drop them in there and see what happens. I'd be like, listen, man, I I understand that you're upset, uh, but this is crazy. We're not going to do that. I mean, first of all, how do we even get up on the roof? Uh, Second of all, this seems like it's a pretty nice home. I don't know how much it costs to rip up a roof and drop some people in there. Plus, there's a lot of people in there who are trying to listen to a very nice sermon of Jesus's. We're going to interrupt this whole thing. I would have given every reasonable excuse in the book why this shouldn't be done. But not these guys. Not these guys. These guys have faith in Jesus enough And they love their friend enough that they're willing to remove any obstacle in the way so that they can bring their friend into confrontation with Jesus. Because they really believe his only hope, his only chance at healing is coming in contact with the living Christ. They were so convinced that the very best thing that they could do was to bring him to Jesus, they were willing to do whatever it took. I think that that raises some really hard questions for you and for me. When we think about what's going on in our friends' lives, when we think about their suffering or maybe their depression or their anger or their struggles, do we really think, man, the best thing that I can do for this person is to bring them to Jesus? I love what the text says next. Look back at verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Notice this. Don't miss this. We don't have any indication what the paralytic man thought or believed about Jesus before he shows up in this moment. What we do know is what those four guys thought and believed about Jesus. We have every indication that these men had faith in Jesus and were willing to go to crazy lengths to get their friend to him. These men believed in Jesus, and so Jesus healed their friend. This ought to lead us to pray really fervently for our friends that don't know Christ. Because Jesus, he looks at people who come to him in faith, and he responds to their requests. And he moves in pity. This is amazing. This ought to move us to do everything that we can to remove every obstacle we can to bring our friends to Jesus. That we ought to practice a whole lot of hospitality. That we ought to patiently endure people's questions. Do whatever we can. Let's look back at verse 5 again. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You can sort of imagine the paralyzed guy in this situation, right? He's laying on his mat on the floor. He hears Jesus say these words, and he may look up and say, Hey, Jesus, I don't really want to make things awkward for you, but uh, I don't know if you noticed this. I am paralyzed. Can you take care of this? Is this, is this something you can do? And I can imagine Jesus, and it's really dangerous, obviously, to put words into Jesus' mouth, right? Uh, But I think the rest of the story plays this out, that you can imagine Jesus looking at the guy and saying, I know, I'm going to get to that. But there's something more important that i got to take care of first. Let me ask you this. What is it in your life that you think is your biggest problem or your biggest need? What is your biggest fear? What is it that keeps you up at night? Maybe some nights you have trouble going to sleep because you're worried about your grades 
for your future, for what internship you're going to get. Maybe you stay up wondering, replaying conversations in your mind, wondering what people thought or how they might respond differently if you say something different the next time. Maybe you stay up at night trying to figure out how to get more likes on Instagram or how to keep your snap streak growing. I don't know. I don't know. I learned what a snap streak was last week. So that's where I'm at in this situation. The paralyzed man is brought to Jesus so that Jesus will take care of what he thinks is his greatest need. Because this paralyzed man, he's probably thinking, right? If I could just walk again, then things would be okay. If I could just get up off of this map, then my life would make sense. Then I would be happy. But what Jesus knows is that healing, it's not going to go deep enough. This guy might feel okay for a week, maybe even a month, best case scenario, a year. But Jesus loves this guy enough, and he loves each and every one of us enough, not to merely heal our secondary problems, however terrible they might be. He wants to go deeper. I've been doing college ministry a long time, so I I know that college students wrestle with the future a whole lot, right? Amen? Oh, man, guys, you know, you know, this must be hitting the mark, and that's why. Who wrestled with what they, had, what they were going to major in or what they were going to do during a summer? Who's worried about what kind of job they're going to get? Who's ever thought about who or if they're going to get married? Okay. Yeah, hands are a little lower on that one. <laughs> Lots of Christian college students, they want to know God's will, Right? But for a lot of people, our desire to know God's will kind of goes something like this. Even if you know better than to say something explicitly like this. God, I want to know your will. I want to follow it. So just let me know the plan. Whenever you're ready, let me know the plan and I'll stop worrying. I'll trust you. Right? That we're trying to make a bargain with God, that we want to know our future, and we think that knowing our future will alleviate our fear. And if you long for control and for certainty, then that means you're going to be crippled by the unknown. And when people don't live up to your standards, and let's be honest, who could? They're going to feel condemned by you, and you're going to start to be overcome and ruled by worry. But what Jesus says is the best thing that I can do for you is lead you directly into that unknown. Because I don't want you to trust the plan, I want you to trust me. If your deepest desires are for love, or for a relationship, or for intimacy, you might be ruled by fear of rejection. You're going to find it really hard to say difficult things to people, or to let people down. You don't want to lose somebody's affection. And then Jesus comes in and he says, you have no idea the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of my love. And I tell you what, other people may leave you and forsake you, but I never will. Think about this just for a second. What if that paralyzed man had only gotten exactly what he had asked for, exactly what he wanted? What if he had been healed of his paralysis and had perfect health for the next 40, 50, 60 years and then fell down dead? What if Jesus could have forgiven his sins, but he didn't? Would that have been a mercy? No, absolutely not. It'd be like if I was a doctor 
and you came to me saying that you had a headache. And I ran you through a scanner and I saw that you had an operable tumor. And I said, you know what? I've got some Advil. Why don't you take two of these every six hours for the rest of your life? It will alleviate the symptoms, but I can fix your biggest problem. What Jesus wants these people to know, what he wants the paralyzed man to know, what he wants every one of us to know is that our biggest problem is our sin. And our sin is not just a list of rules that we've broken, right? It's a heart that says to God, I don't want you to be king. I would rather be king in your place. I think I know better what would make me happy and give me satisfaction and give me purpose. So get out of the way and let me have it. And I got to tell you something. Being in rebellion against God, the king who rules over everything, it's not a great place to be. Let's pick back up in verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So when Jesus tells the man, your sins are forgiven, he's letting everyone around know that he thinks that he has the authority to forgive sins. And the scribes and Pharisees, they know the Old Testament pretty well, right? They know that what Jesus is saying is absolutely outrageous. Only God can say that. Now, uh, I don't know if a lot of you guys have had the opportunity to meet Wynn yet. Wynn helped lead worship up here. Uh, Dustin was the other guy playing acoustic guitar. Did a great job, right? Y'all give him a hand. Now imagine uh, later on tonight, Wynn and Dustin getting a big fight. Dustin gets mad and just totally clocks Wynn. Wynn gets knocked out cold right here on the stage, blood dripping down a little bit. Let's say I wake up, Wynn, and I say, man, I can't believe that just happened to you. And I look up at Dustin and say, hey, bro, I forgive you. Wynn, if he's in his right mind and come to his senses, might be thinking, what? What? You forgive that guy? That doesn't make any sense. He hit me in the face. You're not in this. What are you doing forgiving Dustin? What Psalm 51 tells us is David, this guy who's committed adultery and murder, he confesses against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. That every sin is primarily against God because God rules and owns everything. So when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, He is standing on behalf of God, forgiving him. The Pharisees understand the implications of what Jesus is saying, and then Jesus does something that is even crazier. Take a look at verse 8, because this is awesome. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had just questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus goes full Professor X on this, right? He just goes mind reading. It'd be like me standing up here saying, hey, listen, don't worry about it. Saws is still going to be open when you get out of here. You, yes, she will say yes. You, sorry, you're in the friend zone. No chance. Jesus comes in and he reads these guys' mind. He says, I know what you're thinking, and therefore I've got a question for you. Verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now that is an awesome question. Which is easier? 
on one level, it's a whole lot easier to simply say your sins are forgiven because nobody can verify that. But on the other hand, there's only one being in the entire universe that can actually have the power to do that. Jesus continues, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Man, I wish I could tell you how much I want to say in these next couple verses and we just don't have time. But suffice it to say, okay, I'm going to share one thing really quickly, I promise. Jesus, he doesn't just forgive the guy's sin, right? He also heals his disease. This ought to show us a little bit about what his kingdom is like. That Jesus doesn't just care about the saving of souls. He cares about the healing of everything. So we as Christians ought to work really hard to make better and cheaper medicine for people. We ought to work really hard against racism. We ought to work really hard to defend the rights of orphans and the unborn. And I got to stop there, even though I want to keep going. All right, verse 13. And he went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Pharisees, they don't understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus is supposed to be some sort of religious teacher, but he's not doing what any other religious teacher does. Here he is eating at a tax collector's house, a tax collector who made his living off of charging people more than what they owed a tax collector who worked on behalf of the hated Roman government. The leper was an outcast. This tax collector is an outcast. And Jesus shows up to make friends. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What's he saying? When do you go to a doctor? When your sickness doesn't seem to be getting better on its own. You don't go to a doctor for a little pat on the back and some sympathy, right? You go when you know that you have no other hope to get better on your own. And Jesus is not saying here that some people need healing and other people don't. What he's saying is that righteous people, people who know the Bible, they generally think that they're okay that their sickness, it really isn't that bad, that it's manageable or it's under control. And what Jesus is trying to do here in this statement is to expose the fact that self-righteousness is actually more deadly. Because most of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, we think that we're generally good people. We think that we do more good than bad. And if you laid us out on a scale of all the people that we know, we're probably not the best, most moral people that we know, but we're certainly far from the worst. And a few years ago, there was this guy named Dan Ariely, and he wrote this book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. 
And he talks about an experiment that he ran at Duke University. So here it is, okay? Uh, he gave a bunch of people math problems, but he didn't give them enough time to finish them. And when time was up, the average person finished four math problems, got four correct. And they got paid 50 cents for every correct answer. So they made $2. There we go. Now, this is group A. Group B, what he does is the exact same thing, except at the end of it, he lets them grade themselves, then shred the papers, then tell the test giver how many they got right. All of a sudden, your average person started getting seven right, which meant that they made $3.50. What they found out of 30,000 people was that only 12 cheated a lot, but almost everybody cheated a little. And I think Dan Ariely's um, analysis of this is spot on. Listen to this. He says, essentially, we cheat up to the level that allows us to retain our self-image as reasonably honest individuals. As long as we cheat only by a little bit, we can benefit from cheating and still view ourselves as marvelous human beings. And I think that if most of us were in that experiment and we heard that somebody else cheated, we would have thought, come on, man, what are you doing? And yet, if the shoe was on the other foot and our cheating got exposed, most of us, myself included, probably would have said, man, I know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. Wasn't that big of a deal. I didn't do that much. Look, I'll even pay it back. Because we all tend to judge our sin just like these Pharisees. And our pastor here, Joel Brooks, he put it this way a couple months ago, and I don't know if I can say it any better. He said, we tend to judge other people by their worst actions while we judge ourselves by our best intentions. It's like this, when, when we're in count, accountability and we hear other people confess their sins, there can be these moments where we start to say in our hearts, man, I cannot believe she did that. When we hear somebody confess their sin and we think, I can't believe he did that. I would never do something like that. When our turn comes, we start to shade the truth a little bit. We could confess in some really deep, dark ways, but we don't want to do that because we're not sure how these other people are going to think about us. And so we hold back. The self-righteous people are really, really great at praying for other people while gossiping. Let me give you an example, okay? God, I ask for prayer for Leslie right now because, you know, she went to Steve's party last week and she got really drunk and probably made some decisions that she regrets. And uh, I, I think she hooked up with Tucker, you know, Margaret's boyfriend. And uh, yeah, so she's not really walking with you right now. God, I just pray that you would uh, uh, be with her and also, uh, I guess, be with Margaret because I don't even think she knew. Everybody heard prayers like that before? Am I the only one? If we are particularly advanced in self-righteousness, we can move even further down the line. We can start to feel most confident in our relationships with God when we think back about how many quiet times we've had that week, especially in relation to how many the people in our small group have. But the sin of prideful self-righteousness can go even deeper than that. And just to be honest with you, Knowing that I was preparing for this talk is a very, very dangerous place for me to be. Because I could take a lot of time and read this passage and study and pray my brains out for you guys in hopes that you would really see Christianity for what it is, that you would see Jesus as beautiful. 
And I can spend just as much time reading, I can pray the exact same prayers in hopes that you guys will think that I'm wise, or that you will think that I'm awesome, that I have something to say and that you should listen to me. I can, I can pray and confess my sins in a small group because I really want to be healed and I really want to know Jesus, or because I want to pat myself on the back and feel really good that I've repented of my sins like a good Christian ought to do. This is so subtle. This is why it is so deadly. This is why Jesus in Matthew 7, he tells this story about some men that come to him on the last day and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And Jesus doesn't say to them, hey, you guys were doing good for a little while and then you kind of fell off the wagon. What Jesus says to them is absolutely horrifying. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. These guys had right theology. They were coming to the right guy. And let's be honest. If Jesus asked me which people in the room were Christians, I'm putting money on the guy who cast out a demon. Here's the thing. What Isaiah 64, 6 tells us is that all of our righteousness, it's like filthy rags before the Lord. The best things that we've ever done, if they are not done in faith, are meaningless to him. So if we come before Jesus one day and we say, Jesus, look at all the things that I've done for you. Or if we say, Jesus, I prayed this prayer once and I promise I really meant it and then I try to live a good life. Or if we say, Jesus, this is the mission trip that I've I've gone on. And we just don't get it. We don't understand the fundamental brokenness in our core. Because self-righteous people, what we want are lists of rules to follow. We want a checklist. We want to be able to, to mark every single box and know that we're okay. But I wish that we had time to do it, and I, I encourage you, later on this week, read the rest of Mark 2 and the beginning of Mark 3. Because what Jesus is doing is he is walking around and he is ripping up people's lists. You see the Pharisees and the scribes, they had these lists of things that you were allowed to do and not allowed to do on the Sabbath because they really wanted to honor this rule that God had, that you should keep the Sabbath holy. So they said, this is how many steps you can take and this is what you can and can't do. And Jesus just goes along and he breaks all of these rules. And when they come up to him, they say, Jesus, why are you doing this? He has one answer, because I'm God. I made these rules. These rules We're made for your benefit, not the other way around. Because Jesus wants these Pharisees and each of us to realize and admit, we can't do it. We're not any better than anyone else. We're no more deserving of God's love and affection than anyone else that we've ever met or anyone else that has ever lived. We need to know that we're sick and we cannot make ourselves well and that we have no other hope. And unless you come to Jesus knowing that, that you have no hope apart from him, you don't know him. But the beauty of this gospel is that he doesn't intend to leave us with no hope, right? He is so kind and merciful. I mean, remember the leper at the end of chapter one. In his other healings, Jesus just says a word and the person is healed. But for this leper, he reaches out And he touches this man. And according to the traditions of the rabbis and the Pharisees, this would have made him unclean. But Jesus does it anyway. Why? 
Because Jesus is saying, I'm the one who makes you clean. Jesus so identifies with the hurt of this man that he enters in and he's saying, I will take all that is unclean and broken about you and I will put it upon myself and I will give my cleanness to you. I will make it so that you can stand before God. And he says to each and every single one of us the same thing. I take your sin, I take your guilt, I take your shame and I bore it on the cross And on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So that when God looks at us, he sees us as though we had done every right thing that Jesus did. So I beg you to listen to Jesus, this humble king. And I beg you to listen to the words of Isaiah 1 as though Jesus were saying them from the cross. Come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be washed whiter than snow. There is a way for our scarlet sins to be washed. They can only be washed in the blood of Jesus. When sinners who have no hope see the one who made a way where there was no way. What a good and beautiful God we serve. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every person in this room that we would see our own brokenness, that we would see our shame, and that we would see them nailed to the cross. God, I pray that there we would find mercy, there we would find grace, there we would find comfort, that we are loved forevermore. God, and help us to confess with our voices and believe in our hearts, not of good that I have done. No, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And help us to rejoice in that all the days of our life. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.